This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The mess in the conservative leadership race is reverberating at the municipal level in Brampton, with five city councillors asking disqualified leadership candidate Mayor Patrick Brown not to run again for the city's top spot, accusing him of a clear and alarming pattern of behaviour. So while the Conservatives were investigating the allegations of election financing breaches, the councillors were initiating forensic investigations into allegations of financial and contract irregularities. Now, Patrick Brown, who we will speak to later, later says there are a block of councillors who oppose him. We know that. And he has countercharges regarding their behavior and problems at Brampton City Hall, I have to say, really predate Patrick Brown. Toronto City Hall, on the other hand, looks like an oasis of calm by comparison, but flying under the radar just Weeks after the city was celebrating being chosen as a host of the World Cup soccer games, city staff reports that the price tag is already up by $10 million. And now it's time to tune into the town. Now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi. I'm going to start with you, David. So you are a former conservative, progressive conservative cabinet minister and a former mayor. So uh, I'd like to hear your take on the whole Patrick Brown brouhaha. (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, it, it is just a miasma of, of confusion because uh, I, I think the first, very first point to make with respect to it is that uh, that the Conservative Party has managed to create a fat fiasco out of their own leadership uh, program. So uh, I, I don't get what it is they're trying to do because they won't tell us what it is they know. So they, there's far, far uh, less transparency than is required for such a, a move that they made uh, to, to uh, knock Brown out of the race. That's dealing with the federal part. Uh, with the local part, um, I, uh, you, you mentioned that there was a, a kind of dysfunctional council before Brown got there. And I think it needs to be said that Brown, uh, when he came there, at least gave some, some, some sense of coherence and order uh, to, the, to the Brampton Council. He, he created a, a process of a, a vision for the future of Brampton, uh, 2040, uh, 2040. Um, he engaged uh, in, a, in a really model for the future uh, redevelopment of Heritage Heights. So uh, to me, at any rate, he had a, a pretty enviable record. And now I recognize there's always opposition, but he had an enviable record. The one thing I would say, and maybe it's, maybe it's an old timer uh, with, with, with a different view, but it seems to me when he ran for the leadership of the party, he should have resigned. As mayor, I, I, I somehow I don't get the notion that you can be elected to one job, keep
keep that job and try for another one. Or at least uh, at least take a leave of absence. That's what they're they're saying that that uh, the business of Brampton City Hall is totally on hold because of that. Well, well, absolutely. You cannot. It, but for such a large city, such an expanding city, and a complicated to run city, um, that, that you just cannot take your time away. So he should have. They should have either. You're right. They could have said a leave of absence, have someone act in his place, uh, but through the council, um, or in my own judgment, uh, I think that you you can't sort of go around running for office every year and somehow assume that people are going to trust what you're doing. So I think that there was. There was a, a decision to be made that he didn't make, but I would go back to uh, underlining that he, he brought some order and I think some futuristic thinking and administration to the job when he was there. Okay, Karen, what's your view? Yeah, I, you know, I saw I have a bit of a different take on, um, you know, running for the federal leadership while still maintaining his role as mayor. You know, oftentimes, it, you know, Pierre Poliever, he's running, he's already an elected MP. Um, you know, and Patrick Brown has a family, and it it underscores how hard it is to run if you don't have an income. And you know, if this is his income that his family relies on, I don't think it's actually fair to ask him to give up his seat to run for higher aspirations. I think that you know, you want to encourage politicians to continue to aspire for greater roles, and if the way they do that is to do it from their existing platform and, and their existing job, I, I, personally, I think that that's okay. Um, you know, on the on the broader issue of why the Conservative Party seems to dislike Patrick Brown so much, that's something I just don't understand. But even when he was booted out as the the leader for the Ontario PC Party, it was really on something that was, from my perspective, not substantial. And this issue doesn't seem to be very substantial either, if it, if I understand the issue correctly, which is that uh, a, a company hired people to then volunteer to work on his campaign, because if that if that actually comes down to be the charge then every campaign that's ever run has used volunteers and companies have allowed their staff to volunteer on a campaign. So if they deem that a corporate donation, then a lot of campaigns are in trouble. So so you're surmising, okay, so it seems the allegation is that a putty was paying for people working on his campaign um, as opposed to you're seeing it as though somebody is seconded to do that, which does in fact happen all the time. That's, that would be my view of it. They were seconded to work on his campaign. Now, Again, I'm only reacting to what I'm reading, um, but but the sad part of it is it is politics. And if the party has decided that Patrick Brown is no longer welcome to run as a leader, then appealing it is not really meaningful because he's not going to get elected anyway. But I, I think the party really needs to appreciate the damage that they've done if, in fact, the charge is that you can't second people to work on campaigns anymore. Um, Lauren, uh, watching all of this, what do you make of it? Uh, you know, it's great drama in terms of politics. It's it's very interesting. Um, I can't help but feel for both sides. So, you know, he's disqualified from the federal leadership race based on these campaign funding allegations. But then it comes to the city and it turns out they're like, we want to investigate him, too. There is $629,000 spent on four projects that they didn't see deliverables for. And they allege that a lot of that money went to a firm that one of his friends is employed by. That point, I'm like, I'm not really buying it because everybody has friends who works at different companies. But I do think the fact that he's disqualified from the federal race does, you know, warrant some scrutiny from the city of Brampton. Uh, but it looks like they were already examining him before that. So, I mean, it's a red flag there. But from everything I've seen, uh, 
Patrick Brown's get a great representative for the city of Brampton, um, but there has been a They've lot of scandal a behind the university. Yeah, uh, they they are in the process of getting more health care. Um, yeah, he's done a good job. So where do you draw the line between, okay, there's some scandal at the back end, but he's actually getting things done. I mean, I'm not one to say or judge, but it, it's something to consider. Uh, so, David Crombie, the, the, the real head scratcher in this is is why the party did this without be, being at a, in a position to lay out all the facts. Uh, but when you ask people about those who are involved, the leadership election chair, Ian Brody, and the head of uh, the party, Robert Batherson, people say they are people who would have no reason to mess with this to favor Pierre Poilievre. Yeah, and that's the allegation, of course, that the Brown people, Brown and, and his people have made. Um, and I, I have no information one way or another that tells me the truth of that. But, but, I, but the author of the problem is not Brown. The author of this problem uh, is the way in which the executive of the party went about its business. It, it cannot make such a judgment that has a profound impact on a really important race and not offer even a shred of evidence that they're on the right track. So I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I wish it were otherwise, but the party has absolutely caused itself a big, big problem. And, they, and it, it must have been avoidable. You don't go around making heavy decisions that affect other people um, without having the evidence that you're willing to put forward. And do you see, I mean, we don't really know that much detail about it because they they say it's been forwarded to elections canada i i don't really understand why they didn't wait except that it probably it would have been even later in in the race but do you does it look to you like it's a simple issue of of staff being seconded well on the issue itself i i don't know and i don't know enough about the election law to know uh, what what they envisage when they put that part of it in. I, I, I just don't know. But I, I don't want to put it on the issue on to Elections Canada. The issue needs to remain with the, the executive of the Conservative Party because they've caused this problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, people are saying, A, it helps the Liberals, Lauren, and, and B, it actually, it, it hurts all politicians. I mean, if... Like, I think, like Karen said, it's not easy to run for office and there's a lot of scrutiny and... Yeah, when when any official is coming under this kind of scrutiny without evidence to back it up, and you can just be disqualified like that for, by your party after you've been with them for so long, that that I think is it's kind of scary. And and I, in a lot of ways, I feel for politicians being in these kind of roles, but I can't really make any judgments until we see the evidence. So it would be really nice to see that first before we judge. And I do agree with you though, though that they probably did it now before sharing the evidence before it got too late before the campaign. Is it, further a lot of people say it is too late. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it might be, but I mean, better now than in six months or something, I guess. But. Well, no, the, the, the deadline is September the 10th. And uh, before we move on to the next topic, Karen, uh, what do you make of him hiring Marianne? And she's one of our best lawyers, but she's mostly a criminal lawyer. Yeah, I think that, um, well, he's got a complicated case. And so I don't, and it doesn't seem like it's criminal, but it, it, it's complicated in that um, he, he's got to be seen to be winning in the public eye. And and that's much more complicated. And whether or not he's got the right lawyer to do that is something I don't know. 
Um, and I, I don't even know if he can win this one, even if he's right. Even if he's right. And it's like, when all is said and done, he will probably walk away from this being right, um, but he'll still lose the opportunity to run for leader, and he might lose the opportunity to return to his job as mayor. Uh, uh, any anybody have a different view of that, David? No, no. I, uh, I, I would think that as soon as he hired her to be his lawyer, there were a number of people uh, in the executive of the Conservative Party uh, began to uh, uh, think uh, think strongly about what they should be doing. She's a very effective, very very effective lawyer, and and probably he made the right decision to hire her. In my view. Hmm. Okay, um, let us move right along. And I can tell you, I was not surprised when I saw a report by city staff saying, oh, those games we were so excited about just a couple of weeks ago, well, it's going to cost $10 million more. Yeah, I, I mean, it just seems to keep going up and up. Um, I remember, you know, a few weeks ago when it was announced that Toronto was one of the official host cities for the FIFA World Cup in 2026, that... It would cost, um, I think it's up to $300 million now. And I was referencing old files from two years ago, and they were just talking about it, and it was like $200 million. Um, it just keeps going up. I mean, it's it's a lot. They do say that every game is going to bring in a viewership of half a billion people, which is mind-blowing to me. That's so many people. Uh, and the What does the viewership do for Toronto? Well, well, exactly, right? So it puts Toronto maybe on a spotlight for some people watching soccer or football around the world. But it, I think it will help. The tourism will help local businesses and it will help the local economy. But will it help it enough to offset $300 million? I don't know. Uh, David? Well, <laughs> I, I, when we talked about this earlier... Uh, I, I, I tried to make the point that the money is better spent on the fundamentals of making the city one run better and run well. I mean, the, the city has always had a good reputation of being well run, even though it was oftentimes badly governed. And, and we've gotten a little bit away from that. And, and the idea that somehow we should be spending even more money. And bear in mind, this is the beginning of an inflationary spiral. We are going to be finding ourselves spending even a lot more than this amount of money. Um, when we should be spending not on vanity projects, but on fundamentals that make the city go round. Uh, on the other hand, the mayor uh, was talking about his, I think, very worthy park projects that are going forward, but they're probably delayed, like, you know, while we're spending all this money on some soccer games. Karen? Well, yeah, so I'm going to be the, the minority um, promoter of this. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Majority, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be that voice that uh, does the shout out, and just to, just to be upfront and acknowledge that the costs that were quoted are not the real costs. And when the costs come in and the bills are paid, we're gonna find it's probably a lot more than um, even the even if we were to overestimate because costs go up, unexpected unexpected expenses arise, and as David pointed out, we're in an inflationary period where you know we to be honest, we don't actually know what the final bill is gonna be. Um, all that to say is, you know, what, is, what do a half a billion eyes on Toronto mean? You know, I, I don't know if it's going to boost tourism as much as, you know, we'll recoup on that, but I, I think it's going to do a great thing for the city in terms of bringing us together that we'll have, you know, many cultures that celebrate soccer as a sport or football as a sport will come together and, and be part of this event. Um, I, I think that whether we like it or not, um, soccer is becoming a, a sport that we play in the city, in the GTA, and might even overtake hockey, God forbid. 
And for all of those things... If it hasn't already. (laughs) Yeah, if it hasn't already, which, you know, I think for all of those things, it's important. And, um, you know, we talked about what, you know, what does it, what does it mean when a city can come together and rally around something? And, and, and what does that, that, that goodwill then produce? Well, it produces a lot of good things down the path when we need to call the city to come together again. And so I think it's, it's an incredible thing. I'm very excited about it. And uh, I am prepared for the bill to go up and, and it, it, it is what it is. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, that that is the cue for us to take the call from Pat, who uh, always calls in to say that uh, politicians don't understand finances. Hi, Pat. Please appreciate I was a politician for eight years. I've also been a, a, a CA for the last 50 years. And the, the funny thing is I haven't been on council for four years now. But even this last year, there were comments at the council table saying, where's Pat? He can explain how this works. It is so easy to spend somebody else's money. And all I can think of is the um, the Olympics in Quebec and what went through there. It, if we had some way to, to put the, the people who make the proposals have some element of risk on this, it would make a very different story. Okay, Pat, we hear you. Thanks for that. The other thing that happened in Toronto this week, which is a big issue for a lot of people, especially us here, uh, they're debating or looking at noise directives. I feel like they have been talking about this issue for so long. I mean, it's a huge problem, like you said, Libby. There are so many people running around, like not running, they're driving around the city with these modified mufflers, with these very loud motorcycles, especially with Cafe T.O. I noticed I was sitting on a patio last weekend with some friends and this big motorcycle came by and everyone's like holding their hands over their ears. It's it's obnoxious and it's unnecessary. And I, I remember Mayor Tory, he held a press conference like three years ago announcing yet another noise blitz in which he said something really funny about how these men are compensating for something else. And everyone thought it was funny and it got attention, but the problem remains. And I don't even know if they get decibel readers, if that is going to help, because these people are there and they're gone. How are the police supposed to catch them? But it's it's a huge problem. That's all I know. I hate it. And, and a lot of people are really frustrated with it at this point. Well, yeah. And there's, you know, a lot of the noise can wake people up. And yeah. that's that's it's dangerous for your health. But, you know, they talk, I mean, an enforcement blitz, I think, is all they can do because there aren't enough people to enforce everything that has to be enforced. David. Well, it's, it is true. Uh, noise is always a problem, and, and the city every once in a while has to crack down on it because it can get out of hand. You have to remember, however, and I, I understand the sharp, jagged noise that comes to your ear with some motors, but you have to remember that some people's noise is other people's music. And so you have to get some balance to this. Um, the, the, the loudest noise you'll find in New York City when you do the when they when they monitored it and they were talking about noise in New York, the loudest noise came from the Lincoln Center. Well, so, but you know what? You're reminding me. Uh, this this really annoys me. There are some people who drive with the windows down with their music so loud that it's shaking the road, and I'm thinking, why are they doing that? I think no, it's- no, it's, it's for sure. But yeah. the problem is that we have probably more people than we need saying, look at me, I'm important. 
That's it. That's it. And I, and I think, like David said, some people's noise is other people's music. Like, it's not music to anyone when it's at 3 o'clock in the morning and there are 12 guys in these little <laughs> modified cars running down the gardener. It's echoing off of all the condo buildings. It's just, so yeah. sometimes it can be okay. I don't mind it. But, like... They're doing this late at night. They're waking up kids. They're waking up adults. You know, I don't want to hear that in the middle of the night. Except then, Karen, what can you do? Well, that's it. You can't have a bylaw to fix stupid. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, we've tried. And I don't know if you remember this dating myself, but, you know, Michael Walker was all incensed about leaf blowers on Sunday morning because he just thought that was unnecessary and then tried to ban leaf blowers. But Well, we're you know, still you, trying. A lot of people, a lot of rape bears. Right, but you can ban, but you can you can ban leaf blowers in North Toronto, and it just is somewhat mildly irritating. But it's harder to ban leaf blowers in Etobicoke, where people actually have very very big lawns. And so, the, you know, the, the the big plea I think is again, can we all just have a little bit of decorum, a little bit of respect for your neighbor? And you know, that's unfortunately that's been eroding a little bit, and yeah. and, and that's the bigger piece to solve. It's not. It's not to try to do an enforcement blitz on idiots who think that they're cool when they're not. It's it's how do we impress upon people? You know what? You don't live in this world alone, and that that that's a bigger. Well, you you can't fix challenge. total lack of consideration, and and on the leaf blower thing, you know, if you can afford a big huge lot in Etobicoke and hire a company to clean it up for you, then they can get more uh, uh, environmentally friendly and quieter equipment, or buy a muffler. <laughs> I don't know. Does a muffler work on a leaf blower? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have I, one. My I, lawn's too small. I, I, I don't have one either, but in my neighborhood. And uh, <laughs> full disclosure, uh, I have rejoined our ratepayers group. Uh, I don't know why. But, uh, that's one of the issues. You're looking at more environmentally leaf blowers because uh, a lot of my neighbors have them or they have companies that have them. Yeah. Well, the city still uses them. Right, so when the city finds a solution to their own leaf blowers, then they can pass a bylaw. <laughs> <laughs> I think that about sums it up. Uh, so the the noise thing is it just going to be? I don't know. Is just going to keep coming up every now and again? Just going to be. Yeah, I, 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 it, it, the city it, it does, uh, but if the city every once in a while has to take uh, take it seriously, um, uh, uh, prosecute some people for noise pass something of the law. We just have to remind people that they do have to respect the way in which Karen was talking people about people, that people have to learn to respect. But every once in a while, the city has to remind them that that respect is due to everybody. Well, the city also, they instituted a rush hour blitz because people forget you're not supposed to park your trucks or your cars uh, in, uh, you know, busy arteries so you can grab a coffee or unload your load at rush hour. And uh, maybe having some tickets will do the trick until the next time, I guess, Karen. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been um, a lot of... I'm going to put norms in air quotes, so, like social norms that we, you know, didn't understand. Like, you know, you don't, you don't park your car at rush hour and go get a coffee. But all of that is kind of along the wayside because we don't have a normal rush hour anymore. We haven't had a normal rush hour in two years. There's been a lot of things that have been let slide. And now it's time to remind ourselves about, you know, why it is that you don't park your car during rush hour and that there still is a rush hour. And that, again, like, your your need doesn't outweigh the needs of the 25 cars behind you that you've now blocked. 
but it, it, again, that's a that's a much more complicated discussion, and and one that we really haven't we've 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 unconditioned ourselves over the last two years for lots of reasons around why it is that we do the things that we do to keep the city rolling and to understand that we have neighbors. Hmm. Um, you know, really, being in isolation for two years, I think, deconditioned us to that to that whole notion. Lauren, you're nodding. Uh, I, I completely agree. Um, we, I think being in isolation for two years, being away from people, like there were times during the pandemic where police weren't ticketing at all. And so people kind of cut, got used to parking where they want to, not being considerate. And, and now that traffic is starting to pick up again, like as a cyclist, it's very, very scary to have cars oh, yeah. parked along that way. And as someone who has in the past, when I was much younger, got my car towed for parking in a four to six zone, um, I had been somewhere since like noon and I just didn't move it. Um, I think that a blitz that was is the a, last time you did that, I bet. That, exactly. I think a blitz is effective. Do you know how much money it costs to go all the way up to Sterling to get your towed car and then pay the ticket and then pay them? So I think towing cars is an effective solution because once you have your car towed, you are not going to have that done again by any means. <laughs> okay. What are we looking at uh, for the week ahead, David? Well, certainly uh, just to attack on that uh, comment with respect to streets. It is one of the most revolutionary things that's happened to the city, and indeed many cities, but certainly in Toronto, and that is the, the uh, use of the street. I mean, we, we now have what the planners call complete streets. We have lanes, and we have parking islands, and we have more motorized vehicles of one kind or another that, 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 that the use of the street is complicated both on sidewalks and on the driving right away. So I think that, that uh, we have to have some patience with it. A new generation has, to, uh, has new thoughts about how the streets are used. It was fairly simple before. It's less simple on the, on the streets now. Karen? Well, I, I think that the, pot, the Patrick Brown saga is just beginning. Oh, yeah, and, I agree. And I, I think that if uh, this, could go, this could go a lot of ways, and um, unless the party comes forward with something really substantial, I think we're going to see Patrick Brown put his angry eyes in, and it's going to get really ugly. Uh, as if it isn't already uh, really ugly, <laughs> Lauren. <laughs> you know, I'm I've got my eyes trained on Air Canada and uh, Pearson Airport right now, and kind of seeing the federal government pledged again today to do something to kind of alleviate this horrific congestion. We'll see if it works this time, but I'm definitely watching. And I just wanted to end it by requoting Karen Stintz, what she said earlier. This beautiful quote: "You can't have a bylaw to fix stupid." I wrote that down in high. Like, is, is that yeah. regarding the federal government? No, 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 no. <laughs> about the about the, uh, the cars, but I just I, I wrote that down in my notebook and, and underlined it. So I figured I should say that again. That was really nice. I'm going to use that in the future. Okay, you. Uh, you better credit Karen. I and will, <laughs> David. Uh, on the Patrick Brown thing, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, I, I I agree with those who think it's going to continue. I have no doubt about it because we've now got. Uh, with Heinen being the lawyer, that is going to perpetuate it. You're going to find that the party is going to have to come forward with evidence, and that evidence is going to involve other people in other circles. So I, I agree with that, with those who argue that it is going to continue, and and, and the, it's in the hands, in my judgment, of of, of the executive of the, of the Conservative Party uh, to, to to steer the course. If they don't do that, others will steer it for them and and to their detriment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very interesting chat today. Thank you so much, David Crombie, Karen Stintz, and Lauren O'Neill. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Libby. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, another ouster, this time across the pond. Boris Johnson, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. After resisting calls for his ouster for months, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson finally agreed to resign this morning, but there was no sign of regret or contrition for the many scandals he is embroiled in. In the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. Well, and he's not going immediately, much to the dismay of his opponents. He says he'll stay on until another leader is chosen. Well, people, do you have thoughts on this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Elliot Tepper, a professor of international relations at Carleton University, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor of international affairs at the same university. And let us begin with you, Stephanie. You lived in the UK when Boris was the mayor of London. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, he was the time, um, I think, I think you know, the, the big successes for him, I guess, was that, uh, you know, getting the London 2020 Olympics and kind of managing that process. Uh, but as well, the Bo- he introduced Boris Bikes, which was like a bike, uh, you know, the, the kind of bike programs you see in the cities these days. He, he brought it they, and they, they called them Boris Bikes. You could ride around London on a, on a bike. So it was, um, yeah, it, it was an interesting time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people had, were saying even at that time that he was very much eyeing, um, becoming, uh, the prime minister of Britain. And, and, uh, so, and, and he made it, but, uh, not, not for particularly long. Uh, well, what do you make of it? I mean, we've all w- been watching this for months, and he's always managed to resist, and and he's known to be uh, what would you call it a, a fabulist? Like uh, he makes a lot of stuff up. <laughs> he kind of does. He he's an absolute um, scandal magnet, uh, and but but at the same time, he's always been able to overcome what would be absolutely fatal to so many other politicians, right? And that's kind of part of the legend, I think, of, of you know, Boris Johnson or Bojo, whatever you want to call him. So, uh, you know, and, and even now, what I find really interesting is, you know, in talking to some of my British friends and looking at social media, a lot of people don't trust him. They're saying, yeah, he says he's going to resign, but will he really? Is he actually just looking for another way to try and stay on to survive the scandal? Because, um, this is something that, you know, he's, he's wanted for a very, very long time. And even in his speech today, which was, let's, let's be honest, it wasn't exactly gracious. He basically said that, you know, like he, he, this is his dream job. This is what he wanted to do his whole life. So they still think he's going to try and worm his way, uh, into staying in power for a little while longer. And, and, but I guess it remains to be seen if that's going to be the case. Uh, Elliot Tepper, uh, the opposition leader has said that he'll initiate a vote of no confidence if Johnson doesn't go right away. Yes. 
there is no confidence in the party, and that's why he had to resign. The lack of a confidence uh, support within his own party finally accumulated to the point where he had to accede to the party itself and resign. He would not have done so otherwise. He was relying, I think, on the intricacies of party rules because just what, a couple months ago, he faced a, a no-confidence vote within uh, within Parliament and within uh, his own party as well, therefore, therefore, and he won it. And according to the rules, he did not have to face another no-confidence vote for a year. So I think he was counting on that. But the collapse of support within the party became so overwhelming, uh, up to, I guess, about 50 <laughs> who said they wouldn't serve with him anymore in the ministerial capacity meant he couldn't staff his government, so he had to go. Um, are there any lessons from this for us here, Stephanie? The first lesson I was thinking about is that it, it, is it convenient for conservative parties to, um, you know, thinking of the conversation you just had before we were on, is, is it more useful for, for the conservative parties to have kind of power struggles while they're out of power? And while they're in power, um, <laughs> that might be one takeaway from this. But yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 interesting that um, you know, like like this kind of infighting really doesn't instill confidence in in people, especially when they're they're facing like really severe crises. I mean, like Canada, the UK is is facing a cost of living crisis. It's actually it's actually worse than the UK. Their airports are a disaster, kind of like ours, and these kinds of things. So. Um, you know, for people, for, for just every week for there to be a new scandal coming out, right? Um, you know, uh, just, you know, the same day, uh, that, you know, he, he was coming under, it was actually yesterday, he was coming under so much pressure during, uh, Prime Minister's questions. He was also later on had to admit that he was meeting with, you know, known agents of the Russian government by himself while he was foreign secretary. I mean, this is, this is unreal. Um, so, you know, have leaders that that aren't, you know, who may be popular, who may be pop, you know, like can can speak to everyone. But in the end, if they can't kind of keep an ethical government going, then then, you know, it, it's all going to fall apart. Uh, does he have accomplishments? I mean, people are pointing to he's been great on Ukraine, uh, but some people say, well, any British government would have done the same. Does he have accomplishments, Elliot, that uh, would have justified looking the other way on, uh, I guess, his many transgressions? Well, in terms of the question you ask, lessons for us, when uh, my mantra to my undergrads for years has been, in a parliamentary democracy, when the government of the day defeats itself, it's the opposition that comes to power. And we now have a, a choice within the federal conservatives as to who will be that leader of the opposition who may well come to power. And perhaps this will impact, uh, it'll make people reflective. In terms of accomplishments, it's entirely dependent on your view on Brexit, in my opinion. Yes, he did, he is doing well on, on Ukraine. Those howitzers were, were useful and so forth. He had a personal relationship. But uh, the real legacy to me is that he made the choice that he would become prime minister one way or the other. That is, he would leave, he would lead the leave or remain group, depending on which one would give him the prime ministership. Uh, he was a politician who was very skilled, very amusing, very talented in many ways. But if you like Brexit, 
if you think it was good for the UK, then yes, that's his legacy. But if you're somebody like me, a political scientist, international relations person, this was really a huge, huge matter. And we saw Steve Bannon and the Russians using their wiles as a practice for what later happened in the U.S. to bring Donald Trump to power to weaken the Western uh, unity, remembering that the EU was created to change the cockpit of war, two world wars and centuries of war, into a bastion of peace and prosperity. He undermined that, in my opinion, for personal ambition, and I think that is his legacy. Stephanie Carvin, do you think people will be rethinking Brexit? Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo very much actually what, what Elliot said there. It's, it, it is true. I mean, he, he, you know, he was both arguing for and against Brexit and chose the one that gave him his own ambition. Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing a little bit of buyers and worse with regards to Brexit. Um, basically, there's a lot of trouble, of course, with the Irish, with the, with the border in Ireland. There's a, a, you know, will there be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland? Uh, you know, they're trying to put the border somewhere in the Irish Sea, which seems a, a little bit unworkable. Um, there's also, uh, you know, just problems with uh, bringing people in to basically just bring in the harvest. Right, a lot of the the foreign workers that would come and, and work in the on the farms, they they can't come in as easily anymore. Um, there's you know also just the cost of living, the amount of paperwork now that British firms have to face because you know they're they're entering back into the EU market as as a country that's outside of that market, and the kind of tariffs and paperwork is just a nightmare. So um, I think there is buyer's remorse in this respect. But that being said. Um, the two major parties, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, I, I believe none of none of them have promised that they're going to go back anytime soon. I think what Labour's saying is that we need to come up with some kind of better deal than what we have now. Maybe something like the Norway model, where Norway, I believe, isn't isn't fully into into the EU, but is very much integrated into the market. So um, we we may see something like that in the coming years, but you know. You know, to, to Elliot's point, um, it's just really the fact that this this decision, um, you know, at a time when there's so much global uncertainty, and certainly Boris Johnson has done well with Ukraine, but you know, the UK is going to be so distracted with this for for like basically a generation. Uh, we are uh, just about out of time, Elliot Tepper. Last twenty seconds to you. What happens next? Is he going to go immediately, or does he stay on until there's a new leader? up to the caucus itself right now. They have not made that decision. Uh, it looks likely to me that their interim government is more possible since the two leading contenders to replace him have both said, that's Dominic Robb and Michael Gove, have said, we are not running for the leadership, so the possibility exists of an interim leadership without Boris Johnson, but that is up to the party. Okay. On that note, thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Carvin and Dr. Elliot Tepper. And we'll be watching this one closely. Cheers. Okay. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to be speaking to Patrick Brown. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. We have been reporting on the disqualification of Patrick Brown from the conservative leadership race since it broke. There have been some new developments, though the circumstances around this are still very, very far from transparent. Patrick Brown joins me now. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Libby, always uh, nice to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, first of all, how are you? I'm, I'm disappointed. Um, I'm angry. If, if the party wanted to have a coronation, they could have told me at the beginning. Um, you know, we signed up over 150,000 um, Canadians to participate in this leadership race, particularly from diverse communities that had never voted in a conservative leadership race before. And they feel disenfranchised. They feel that their voice has been um, taken from them. And so I'm I'm very much um, upset with uh, how this has, has gone down. Um, but uh, ultimately, a political party um, is not a democracy. It's a private club, and they can make decisions that are not uh, consistent with um, the procedural fairness you'd expect elsewhere. Okay, I'd, I'd like to get to uh, the newer things that are emerging. Now, they say this is based on allegations from inside your camp and that they have uh, some kind of paper trail and that it's not from Poilievre. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Party establishment is clearly doing the bidding for the Poilievre camp. Um, it was the Poilievre camp that told my campaign chair, John Reynolds, uh, just last week that they were going to try to get us disqualified. It was his supporters on Leoc that were pushing this. You know, this was a split decision. Um, half of Leoc thought this was egregious, and uh, the Polyev uh, sympathizers uh, on Leoc pushed this through. They've, they have, they've had a history of being bullies. They got Ed Fast, the finance critic, removed his finance critic. They tried to kick my campaign co-chair, Michelle Rempel-Garner, out of caucus. Um, and all we've heard is that there's an allegation that someone who was um, a volunteer on my campaign was being paid by a business, that we've been told no information about who the individual is, what the business was, and if for some reason someone was working on my campaign during work hours, we would certainly um, want to fix that and compensate the business. But we have no idea what they're talking about. And so it's impossible to file, as to respond to um, a phantom allegation and we we've asked the party for details but you know let's call it state of state you know this is a flimsy allegation used to justify disqualification um because they were nervous uh that we had the points to win this uh, i really felt with my strength in urban and suburban canada with the huge membership numbers we put up with jean charade's strength in quebec um that there was a, a real path to victory and did you uh- um, Sorry, did did you respond to them in writing the way they asked? Because they said they gave you every opportunity to do that. We did. We responded to them saying that um, we wanted details of this and we'd immediately investigate it, um, but they wouldn't tell us any details. They wouldn't tell us um, who this alleged individual was, who this anonymous... Hello? Patrick? Possible to respond to an allegation um, without detail. Um, uh you know, we, we were just discussing this on our municipal panel, and um, some people were saying it sounded to them like it might be an issue of somebody being seconded to your campaign, possibly from from Brampton. Is, is that something, is that a possibility? And I know that happens a lot on campaigns. So we asked that question. They wouldn't give us any information. So we'd just be, be guessing. And I would note, in terms of the city of Brampton, um, uh, of course, there was employees that wanted to support my campaign. 
Um, but we had a strict policy um, that you, you could only do so um, when uh, when you're not working. If you wanted to volunteer, it's the same rule we have for provincial and federal elections. Any uh, employee is allowed to get involved in a provincial or federal election, but they have to do so during their non-work hours. And, of course, we abided by that. You've hired Marie Ennen, very brilliant lawyer, one of the top people in Canada, but, but she's mostly a criminal lawyer. So um, why Marie Ennen? Well, we thought that she's got a great reputation in terms of uh, standing up for injustice, and we showed her the party correspondence that was given to us um, and thought uh, that there'd be no more capable lawyer to um, take this up with the party um, than her. Uh, and uh, you know, she's obviously um, very talented. I mean, the party says there is no appeal. There's no recourse. You're talking about going to court. Courts uh, have not been anxious to get involved into private party matters in the past. Thresholds, um, certainly, uh, for a court to uh, overrule a decision of the party. Um, but there's been 150,000 Canadians who've been disenfranchised. Um, you know, we've been inundated with messages from supporters saying they want their $15 back, that they, they signed up to vote in this leadership uh, for the purpose of building a more inclusive party uh, under my candidacy. And they feel they've been robbed of this opportunity. And, you know, Libby, I've been challenging the orthodoxy of, of the party. I've been presenting a very different version of conservatism. It doesn't matter who you love, where you're born, the color of your skin, what God you worship. I wanted to build a modern, inclusive party. And, uh, you know, you have Pierre Polia, who's really trying to build um, a party similar to the Texas Republicans or Ted Cruz. And so this really was a battle for the soul of the party in terms of which direction we're going. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that the party establishment has circumvented the membership's ability to make this choice themselves. Uh- you know, everybody watching this is convinced it's just at the beginning and it's not going away. But do you believe that there is any path for you to get back in the race? Well, um, I don't know yet. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to rely on uh, Marie's uh, advice on, on what the appropriate course of action is and um, if there is um, a legal recourse. And what about Brampton? So a group of councillors who granted oppose you on councils have asked you not to run again. And they've said that there are irregularities in, in contracts and uh, stuff like that. Uh, what, what's your response to that cropping up? Well, in, a, in most cities, you've got two different camps of councillors. I continue to support councillors in Brampton that have, I believe, abided by um, the advice to the city clerk and the city solicitor. Um, I should say, first of all, the mayor doesn't give out contracts. Um, contracts are given out um, by tender. It's a competitive process. Um, and they're complaining about our advocacy for the branch of medical school. Um, that was tendered, and we were successful. You know, we got the provincial approval to build a medical school in, in Brampton. That has nothing to do um, with this. The fight on council right now is because one of the councillors um, was found guilty of um, sexual harassment from our integrity commissioner. Um, he was caught with a recording um, of of his actions, uh, and uh, he he appealed the integrity commissioner's uh, ruling. Uh, it got upheld. Um, the integrity commissioner's decision got upheld by the uh, Ontario court. And then uh, when I was away at a leadership event, they fired the integrity commissioner. And so 
council was livid about this. Um, clearly, there was a small group of councillors that uh, um, fired the integrity commissioner for doing her job. Now that we have um, a compliment, full complement of councillors back, we want this investigated. Um, and this group of councillors is trying to prevent that. So you've got a fight on two fronts, basically. Well, that's politics. There's, uh, there tends to be uh, vicious debates in every legislature, um, at all three levels, uh, in every city, in every province uh, in Canada. And I happen to be involved in two levels of politics right now, a local um, and federal. Uh, back to the leadership race, what a lot of people are saying about Rob Batherson, the president of the party, and Ian Brody, the head of the Leadership Election Committee, is that they are both upstanding individuals who would have no reason to target you. So um, Rob Batherson wasn't involved in any of the meetings that our party was, our campaign was invited to. He wasn't involved in any of that um, uh, where we were asked these, these questions. Um, and so I'm sure he's just reading the talking points that were that were given to him. Um, but uh, I certainly feel disqualifying a major candidate for the leadership of the party who had brought in 150,000 memberships on an anonymous allegation um, is an egregious abuse of our democracy in the Conservative Party. And uh, who do you think this serves? I mean, aside from Pierre Poilievre, but in, in terms of the conservative brand. Well, listen, uh, Pierre Poilievre is the one celebrating today. Uh, his supporters got their wish. They wanted me out of the race. But the only one who should be celebrating is Justin Trudeau. Because if they get a run against Pierre Poilievre, they're going to have the easiest election they've ever had. Here's a guy that said he could beat inflation through investments of cryptocurrency. And as soon as he made that recommendation cryptocurrency went down in value 60%. This is a guy who was out there supporting people like Pat King in the truckers' convoy and making pledges to ban childhood vaccine mandates for things like measles and smallpox and polio. Libby, the Liberal Party would have a field day. And so there's a lot of happy Liberals in Ottawa right now. The prospect of running against Pierre Polyev, you know, he's their dream candidate. So, uh, just what are your next steps, and and what's the timeline on them? I mean, if you're sending things to the courts, that usually takes time. Are you trying to get things speeded up? Yeah, you know, obviously we're looking at our legal options as as quickly as possible, uh, but time is the enemy right now, and uh, it's unfortunate that the party would engage in this uh, intervention uh, as ballots are being mailed out. Uh huh. And uh, so you 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 have no sense of a timeline and to uh, what court it would be appealed or anything like that. No, we're not there yet. Um, but uh, uh, hopefully, um, we'll know what our options are very quickly. And uh, in the meantime, uh, you're in Brampton. I'm in Brampton. Yes, uh, I was at work at City Hall yesterday, and uh, um, I'll be in Brampton for the next few days. Um, uh, figuring out uh, what the next steps are. Okay. Uh, anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, but thanks for having me on and happy to answer questions anytime. Okay. Thank you so much, Patrick Brown. Appreciate your time. And that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So uh, there are a lot of things we want to hear from you about. The disqualification of Patrick Brown, uh, clear as mud, I would say. And all the other stories we've been talking about all week.
That's all the time for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.